makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Greetings and good day, good evening and good morning, depending where you are listening and welcome my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart and it's a good day for all of us to be here. And this is First Voices Radio and I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse, your host, and this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 29th year broadcasting, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio, and you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org for archiving, downloading, and listening. Uh, last year, in early June of this year, the remains of 215 Indigenous children were found at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia, Canada. And the school was one of the largest Indian residential schools in Canada and operated from the late 19th century to the late 1970s. Indigenous children, some as young as three years old, were forcibly taken from their families and put into residential schools in Canada. And this is also what happened in native boarding schools in the United States during the same time period. Children's hair was cut off. They were forbidden to speak their indigenous languages and to see their families. Some didn't return for many years and some never returned. Countless children suffered terrible indignities, mistreatment and horrors, including beatings, rape and other forms of sexual violence, disease and even death. And residential school experiences continue to adversely affect many survivors today. 
And I speak with Christine Dindisi McCleave, Turtle Mountain Ojibwe, CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Coalition, Healing Coalition, about her organization's support of the introduction of a U.S. bill for a Truth and Healing Commission on Boarding School Policies. The National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition's mission is to lead in the pursuit of understanding and addressing the ongoing trauma created by the U.S. Indian boarding school policies. Christine is a leader and an activist for Indigenous rights, advocating for truth, justice, and healing for the genocidal policy of U.S. Indian boarding schools. She has dedicated her life and work to pursuing truth and healing for the Indigenous survivors of historical trauma at the hands of colonialism and settler states. Christine is one of the primary investigators for the child removal in Native communities. An anonymous survey currently being conducted with the University of Minnesota and she has published several scholarly articles, including one titled The Catholic Church and U.S. Indian Boarding Schools, What Colonial Empire Has to Do with God, in the Journal of the West, and again, Catholic Indian Mission Schools, Colonial or Decolonized Spaces in the American West. And in 19, excuse me, 2020, Christine was instrumental in writing H.R. 84020, Truth and Healing Commission on Indian Boarding School Policy Act and the first bill ever introduced to a commission addressing boarding school policy in the U.S. And you can find out more about the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And it's an honor to welcome Christine McCleave. So thank you, Christine Dindisi McCleave, for joining us here on First Voices Radio. Um, We're here to talk about the healing coalition that's urging support for truth and healing commission in the United States about the United States, yes, Indian boarding schools. And with us is Christine Dendisi McCleave. And I'd like to thank you for joining us here, Christine. Thank you for having me, Tiokasen. You know, a lot of people are wondering what is a healing commission and what is, what do you mean Indian boarding schools and because you are with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And a lot of people that that will listen to this program really want to know the truer history. And I think um, your coalition carries that with the education behind it, with the experience um, of Native people and as being Native yourself, and all the supporters that are coming forward nowadays. Could you guide us in what the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition is about. Sure. We are a nonprofit that was formed by a grassroots movement that began with the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission and uh, survivors here in the United States wanted a commission here as well. So our mission is to lead in the pursuit of understanding and addressing the ongoing trauma that is a result of the United States Indian boarding school policy. And that was a policy that began in 18. with the Indian Civilization Fund Act and was furthered by uh, President Grant's peace policies in 1869, which allowed churches to access those Indian Civilization Funds. So we ended up with federally run and church run Indian boarding schools. And those schools 
were intended to quote unquote civilize Indian children. Uh, really, it was a uh, tactic of colonization. And these were assimilative schools where they prohibited language and culture and forced conversion to Christianity. They, um, the education portion was, was not very high level. In fact, they really were training young uh, Indian students to be uh, farmers, laborers, and domestic servants. And of course, you know, that policy went on for over 100 years until we reached the self-determination era after the civil rights movement, American Indian movement, where we had laws that reversed the original policy of the United States, laws such as the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, the Indian Child Welfare Act, the Language Revitalization Act, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is a legacy uh, of the United States to basically commit cultural genocide, if not outright genocide here on indigenous peoples in Turtle Island. And it has had intergenerational um, impacts, you know, the loss of our language, the loss of our cultures and all the things that we struggle with in our communities that are a result of colonization and assimilation in this country. That is what we're dealing with. And that is what we are asking the federal government and the churches to be held accountable for. Christine, when I think about you mentioned the year 1819, most people think modern indigenous studies is, oh, 1880, when Pratt started the Carlisle um, Industrial School for Native People. Um, but yet that lasting effect that happened from 1890 onward, it actually goes even before that. But we could talk about that. But the education level, it would seem it's overdue. And now we have a senator and some congressional people and women and men coming forward. Can you tell us about, about the legislation that they're introducing? Yes, um, this has been a, a long time coming. Obviously, Canada had a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that lasted five years, but wrapped up in 2015. And, you know, here we are in 2021, and we still have not had a Truth Commission in the United States. And it really was the, um, I think it was the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd last year that really brought uh, worldwide, if not just national attention to the need for racial justice and, and racial equity. And we had talked with then Congresswoman Deborah Halland about our work and she was supportive. And so after the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd in September of 2020, she introduced the first bill for a truth and healing commission on Indian boarding schools. Um, and then, of course, she you know, moved on to the Department of the Interior. And so we worked with uh, Senator Warren and Representative Sharice Davids and uh, Senator Tom Cole. I'm sorry, Representative Tom Cole to introduce reintroduce that bill. And um, the result is that we got a much stronger bill this time around because of all the news that came out of Canada about the unmarked graves that were um, located. Now, we don't say they were discovered because during the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they heard testimony that these unmarked graves existed. And so it is in the report from the Truth Commission that they knew these unmarked graves existed in these communities and the Canadian government just didn't fund the research to actually locate them. And so those communities were left on their own to do that independent research. And now, um, you know, earlier this year, we heard all the news coming out of Canada about various locations of unmarked graves at their residential schools. And we believe that is uh, what really prompted the um, expansion of the bill from 
the first time around, it was introduced as a two-year commission, and this time it was introduced as a five-year commission. And um, that also spurred the in introduction of the investigation by the Secretary of the Interior, uh, Secretary Halland, to look into Indian boarding school cemeteries in this country. When you say look into the boarding schools, it seems Canada has, is steps miles ahead of the larger amount of boarding schools in the lower 48 in Alaska. But Canada has about 130-ish uh, boarding schools, uh, institutions. But why is it so slow in the United States? That's a good question. Um, one that I don't think I can answer fully. I mean, there's probably a lot of different reasons, all of it owning to the fact that this country has never really told the truth about its history, its origins. Um, and so that is that is what we're facing right now. There, There is the cry right now for that truth and that reckoning, both from indigenous peoples and from African-American folks in this country that, you know, we're, we're really hoping that this country can move forward in a way that acknowledges its crimes against humanity in the past so that we can stop inflicting harm upon people going forward. The education level in the United States seems to be a, a what I would think is higher in the East Coast here. And but when it comes to a history of Native peoples, it seems to be there is a need of some kind of media reparation, I would say. And there's this anecdote about I have some friends who found out that at one time I was in boarding school and they raised their eyebrows in surprise and asked me the question, if your family, your people were so poor, how could you afford boarding school? And to me, it just goes to show the degree of awareness regarding the U.S. Indian boarding schools and the consequences that we suffer. As you said, we need that truth and healing. And um, is it part of uh, these devastating consequences of this assimilation and, and regarding the education, not just from Native people, but other people who just seem to turn their heads, you know, and and don't want to go there. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why, you know, it takes us being able to understand the historical context so that we can interpret the present day uh, circumstances. So in order to fully understand why American Indians and Alaskan Natives are leading in all of the negative statistics, one must understand um, how that came to be. And it was because of Indian wars, because of uh, loss of land, assimilative boarding schools, I mean, relocation, the Indian Adoption Project, it, the list goes on and on. Our people have suffered trauma after trauma, generations and layers of historical trauma. And uh, we are the most resilient people on the planet because they tried to genocide us and we are still here. So rather than focusing on a deficit discourse, we focus on healing and resiliency. But for the, the rest of the public who's non-Indigenous, they absolutely must be educated. And dismantling those false narratives of the past, those narratives that tried to explain away um, the land theft that was happening, that, you know, um, we weren't even considered 
full people that the doctrine of discovery said, you know, if they're not Christian, you can claim the land, right? Um, all of these things that were done, murders, massacres, um, stealing our children, all of those were done with the belief of some narrative that told the story that it was okay to do these things, that it was manifest destiny, that we were savages. All of these things need to be examined and dissected so that we can build a true narrative one that is inclusive of our perspective as indigenous peoples and how we experienced history um, going forward. Again, if this country is to be truly great, it must acknowledge the genocide of the indigenous peoples. Acknowledging culture, genocide, and yes, a lot of that I have put the work in, and as you have with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, we're talking with Christine Denisi McCleave, and you said something about culturally irrelevant and trauma-informed, and I go back to our tribal, quote-unquote, tribal ceremonies, the medicine work that we are have been doing, and you mentioned how we have been so resilient and gotten this far, it's like the miracle. And now we are stating this is culturally, culturally irrelevant. And um, I, I would lend that I had gone through several uh, ceremonies from my people, and that seemed to help me. The information was fine, but it was a culturally relevant ceremonies that it really informed me that, oh, I'm still here. I'm still here. Do you find that a bigger statement than the information statement that we we know as Native people, yet the outer world does not. Yes, I think that's a really good point that you bring up, Tiokasen. Um, oftentimes we do have to translate uh, for people who aren't Indigenous or, um, you know, even for those of us who have been assimilated for multiple generations and have lost touch with our culture, the Indigenous way of knowing, the Indigenous way of thinking and being, um, the worldview is very different than the Western ways. And, um, and so we do often have to translate and, and explain things in a, in a Western way for, for people to understand. But absolutely, when we say culturally relevant, that's what we mean. Um, that is the Western term that, you know, basically signals that we will use our indigenous ways and our indigenous practices to um, not only heal ourselves, but to move forward and strengthen our communities through our ceremonies, our, our stories, our traditions. Um, there's so much that Western society has dismissed from indigenous peoples and Western science is just now starting to catch up with ancient indigenous knowledge. I've talked with several survivors um, around the age of 50 and 40, um, even up to like 80 and 90. How long have these boarding schools been open and, you know, in our modern context? And when did the last one close within the United States? Well, Tiokasen, according to our independent research, we have identified at least 300, identified and verified at least 367 Indian boarding schools in the United States. 73 of those schools are still open today and 15 of them are still boarding students. Now, due to the self-determination era and the, that legislation, these schools now promote language and culture rather than prohibit it. But some of these are schools that have been open since the days of being an assimilative school. 
to me, that is frightening. But since you said they're, they're teaching the culture, I know that the reparations in Canada, they offered money. What do you foresee um, with the legislation that's currently being introduced? Is there any type of reparations besides, you know, maybe teaching the culture, but reparations monetarily to people and survivors? I think a lot of us want to know. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, it it will definitely remain to be seen how uh, how the commission wants to deal with that. I think the difference in Canada was that their commission was formed as the result of a class action lawsuit. And so, you know, in my conversations with some of those uh, commissioners from Canada, Chief Willie Littlechild and Monica Wilson, um, I have learned a lot about that process. And there was the seven volume report that came out of the commission after they held regional hearings and collected testimony. So that report details in, in great length all of the impacts and things that happened in those um, residential schools in Canada. They did a separate process where they interviewed uh, the claimants that were part of the class action lawsuit and assigned a monetary amount to the abuse that they endured and they did uh, pay them. That was part of the lawsuit. And what we heard from survivors and descendants is that the process with the commission where um, they took great care at those regional hearings to collect the testimony in a way that provided um, mental health support and spiritual supports to the survivors who were testifying there versus the um, the interviews to assign a dollar amount to perhaps say sexual abuse. That latter experience was actually re-traumatizing for a lot of people to say that the abuse they endured had a dollar amount assigned to it. And um, in a lot of cases, they felt like it wasn't enough and it certainly didn't provide the healing that was needed. So um, I don't see the exact same thing happening here in the United States, particularly because there is no class action lawsuit, but we believe that the commission will fully examine the impacts of the boarding schools, that they will collect testimony and that they will make recommendations for, um, I, I don't know if reparations is the exact right word, because as sovereign nations with um, treaties here in the United States, what we really are not, we're not looking for reparations, we're looking for them to honor the treaties. And what the boarding school policy was, is the United States government taking the promise in the treaties to provide education for our children and using it to destroy our culture. So that's what needs to be repaired. That's so beautiful to hear. I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing, Christine McCleave. And um, just going forward here, what can the people pay attention to to keep abreast of what you are doing? Do we go to your website or, you know, we just watch the news? Absolutely. Uh, you might see us in the news, but there's uh, a lot of other people in the news that are doing this work and telling their stories. Um, and so you would probably want to head to our website to know exactly what we're up to these days. That is boardingschoolhealing.org. We have plenty of educational resources on their resource database, as well as a free curriculum and a primer on Indian boarding school history. Again, that's boardingschoolhealing.org. Oh, it's so great to talk to you once again, Christine McCleave. Dindisi, I love that name. So um, thank you for being here again. It's always an honor for me as a Native to talk with another Native, you know, it, and it feels good that way. And I think that healing process is coming through the airwaves here. So thank you again, Christine, for being here. 
Chimigwich Tilkasen, thank you for having me back again.
If you're hurting in your relationship and want to talk, Stronghearts Native Helpline is here to listen. Stronghearts is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic dating and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans and Alaska Natives. Connect with an advocate by calling or texting 1-844-7-NATIVE or by using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. And welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. I spoke with Christine Dindisi McCleave, a Turtle Mountain Ojibwe, CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Lots of information, and you can find out more about the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition at boardingschoolhealing.org. And uh, the music that you listened to was off uh, an album called Playing for Change. It's something that all these musicians around the world come together and they they sing special songs, and this one came out to be All Along the Watchtower, featuring Warren Hayes, Surreal Neville, Ivan Neville, and uh, Johnny Cruz. And along with that were the Dakota Lakota singers out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I'd like to say that, and thank you for that. And October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. According to the National Institute of Justice, domestic violence impacts Native Americans and Alaska Natives with more than 1.5 million Native women and 1.4 million Native men experiencing violence during their lifetime, often by non-Native perpetrators. Domestic violence among Native Americans is not natural or traditional. The domination and subjugation of Native Americans begin with colonization and continues today. Colonization was responsible for the theft, occupation, and pollution and exploitation of indigenous lands. And today, natives who are living in tribal communities on or near their lands are exploited by extractive industries who face, and they face, the highest rates of domestic and sexual violence. And I talk with Lori Jump, a Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, the executive director of Strong Hearts Native Helpline, a 24-7 culturally appropriate domestic dating and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans and Alaska Natives. Lori is a former executive director and current board member of Uniting Three Fires Against Violence, Domestic Violence, and Sexual Assault Tribal Coalition in Michigan. And she served on a federal task force researching violence against American Indians and Alaska Native women and has more than 26 years of tribal advocacy experience in her community. The tribal programs that Lori has developed include victim services and advocacy, tribal court and law enforcement programs, victims advocacy, and women's shelters. And any Native people out there that have listened to First Voices many, many years know that Strong Hearts Native Helpline can be reached or by calling or texting 844-762-8483 or clicking on that chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. And I'd like you to listen now to Lori Jump. Thank you for joining us, Lori Jump. And it's an honor to hear you uh, once again on First Voices Radio. And uh, the words are strong that we need to acknowledge, not just the land, but the people and the Native people who are going through much of what we'll be talking about today, which is the domestic dating and our sexual violence and, and our other disparities that we experience because of either not enough peer support or advocacy on all people's part for Native people. So let's begin with how the Strong Hearts services have come together and begin with the background of Strong Hearts itself and how you're associated with it. Sure. Well, as you know, I'm the director for Strong Hearts Native Helpline, and our helpline was 
came together really as the result of um, Native advocates really saying, you know, there are not enough services for our people in our tribal communities. And we knew that there were so many gaps across the country where maybe one tribe would have a program, but the next two or three tribes didn't have one. And so, you know, we needed some way for people to be able to reach out for help and have somebody answer that call. Um, and so that's how really how we came to be was, you know, grassroots advocates saying we need something for our people. And uh, really the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center and the National Domestic Violence Hotline really came together to make that dream a reality. Um, so we were established in, you know, 2017 is when we launched um, and when we first were launched, you know, we were just a pilot project and very limited hours. There were only six of us and only two of us were advocates. Well, we've grown a lot over the past four years, four and a half years. And, you know, we're now 24-7. Um, our, our helpline is confidential and anonymous, which we know is so important to our people when they're reaching out for help. And most importantly, it's culturally appropriate. You know, it's, it's centered in our native ways. Um, which is important to the relatives that we want to serve. A Lori Jump, when you talk about culturally appropriate, yet many people would conglomerate or amalgamate us all into one group as if we had one culture, but that's not true, is it? No, you know what? It's not true. And so when we say we're culturally appropriate, you know, we there there are things that are similar, right? We all have a belief in, you know, the goodness and the respect that's needed for all living things. Every tribe believes that, right? And so, you know, we're we're we really ask the people who contact us what's appropriate for them, what do they do for their culture, what traditions do they have? You know, and so we let them kind of lead that conversation with, you know, with our help guiding it. Um, but, you know, we that that respect for all living things, I think, is something that, you know, all tribes share. And and uh, so we start from there and then we we, you know, let our contacts lead that conversation. So when we're we're talking about education and uh, taking the culture in your, your community and where the wherever the native community is, it seems to be everywhere scattered, uh, diasporic, if anything. But there, there's their conventional and mainstream education, which we think, and because of our experience as native people, which is undergoing a major paradigm shift, uh, or at least it should. And how, what direction do you see even educating our own about the domestic violence and the disparities we have traditionally not have experienced, but now it's, it's within our communities. You know, we talk a lot about historical trauma and what our people have been through, right? Because we know that from our history that women were sacred. They, did, they were not treated in this way. And we know that from, you know, just our, our storytelling, that's how most of us have our, our beliefs come down through us and our traditions is through storytelling. You know, they're not written down in books and you don't, we don't learn them that way. We learn from example. And so we know that our, our women were traditional, I mean, I'm sorry, were uh, highly respected as life givers and, um, you know, in our communities. And, and we know that, the colonization that our people experienced really introduced many bad things for our people. And we still experience the um, 
trauma from those times. And as a result of that, you know, we, we now have many disparities in our communities, health disparities, lack of resources, uh, you know, substance abuse, child abuse, domestic violence, all of those things. I really believe we can trace back to colonization and the different things that our people experienced. These weren't traditional, you know, actions for our people. Um, so when we do education, you know, we, we talk about that, you know, because I think it's important for people that are experiencing this to understand that it, it wasn't traditional for our people and that it is, uh, you, you know, the result of, of trauma. And, um, you know, so we, we talk a lot about that so that they understand why this is such a problem in our communities. One of the things that you know, we say is, is that, you know, your healing journey can start when you tell your story, right? Telling your story and making it real. And you can start to heal in that way. Um, many of our people haven't had that opportunity to heal. You know, our, our traumas have not been acknowledged. We don't have the services we need to heal. And, and so this really can be a, a, a learning point for our contacts and an opportunity for them to, you know, understand why their families have experienced what they have and, and how to start that healing journey. And really, I think you're talking about the cultivation of our culture, um, bringing it back, so to speak, because a lot of this was affected by the generations of boarding school mentality that's, that as you talked about intergenerational trauma or a result of trauma. And now we are at the place that we can actually, um, you know, put into action what we talk about walking our talk. And what I'm thinking about this, you know, how or, or which way do you think that the First Nations or Native people here in America, spiritually or their cosmovision, can help address the current challenges that all humanity is facing now? And I would say that the, the distancing of the earth, and, and I think from my experience through boarding school and maybe your experience too, is that it seems that we still have the medicinal value of spiritually how to heal because of our ceremonies. And I think you you alluded to that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I really believe that uh, the only way we're really ever going to, you know, address all of the disparities and the ills that really affect our communities is through our culture. You know, our healing ceremonies, our traditions, getting back to those. Um, that I think many of them are based on respect, right? And, and, you know, if you respect somebody, you don't treat them in this way. Um, and I, I do believe that, you know, our way out is through those traditions and ceremonies. I think that we really need to get our young people, you know, uh, back interested in who they are as a people, where they come from, um, and, you know, what their ancestors experience so that they could be here today you know we are you know the, you know there's a meme for everything right you know you look on facebook or on social media and there's a meme for everything but you know there's one that says you know we are who our ancestors dreamed of and we are i believe that i think that you know we have the power to change our communities to make them better. And it all goes back to, you know, who we are as a people, getting back to that. 
We're speaking with Director Lori Jump from the Strong Arts Native Helpline. And you'll hear more information after this interview with Lori here. And a few more questions, Lori, is, um, you know, the media platforms out there, of course, the Facebook, the Twitter and Instagram. And I always think about it this way, too. Like yesterday, they all went down. There was no accessibility to anything. But yet the telephone remained. And it's sort of a metaphor antidote to what we were talking about, not relying so much on that other system, but our own peer support and advocacy, as you might have mentioned. But other other awarenesses like this month is uh, I think it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And how do we fit within that within that structure that maybe the mainstream is, is also looking to what you are doing as, as an organization of Strong Hearts? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, uh, in some ways we lead the way, you know, I think that, you know, all, every community is struggling with this, right? So in some ways we, we share so much, you know, we're, we, we share this, this, you know, this uh, domestic violence, sexual violence, all of that, you know, it's not just in tribal communities, right? It's worse for us. Our rates are much higher than other communities. Mm. Um, and so I think the problem is more dire for us, but, uh, you know, we're all struggling to find a way to, to, to bring people back to, um, you know, what for us, our culture, but for other people, you know, they're, they're trying to do the same thing, you know, they're trying to find a way to heal and we all share that, you know, so we, we fit there. And I think that they look to us, you know, you've seen, we've seen some, um, court systems going to restorative justice. You know, models, which I think are so important and and do offer opportunities for healing, not just the the victim, but also, you know, the abusive partner. That's important. You know, we can't just work with with the survivors. Um, You know, we have to work with those who do harm, because if if we don't, they're going to continue. And so, you know, that's very important for us. And, and, you know, uh, in, in tribal communities, you know, those are, those are our brothers, our uncles, mm-hmm. our, maybe our grandfathers and maybe our sons, you know, that are doing harm. And so, um, you know, and I speak in terms of, you know, female victims and male victims. And, I, you know, there certainly there are male victims. You know, I, I believe that with all my heart. Uh, you know, and we and we work with them as well. And but you know, I say he and she because you know the the vast majority of victims are are female. Um, that's just the the reality that's borne out by statistics. Um, but there certainly are male victims, and and they are every bit as important that we work with them as well. I want to keep highlighting that Native women and children uh, face the highest rates of domestic and sexual violence across the, the nation. To some. It's a hard subject to talk about, but the missing white woman syndrome, if I could go there, and, and yet the missing and murdered indigenous peoples who have be, have really remained unreported or unnoticed, and people aren't aware of them and the disparity, in the, even in the media. Um, I interviewed somebody last week, and it's like, we need media reparations so that we can be given equal coverage about what's happened to the Native in this case, some missing and murdered Indigenous women across this nation. What are your thoughts about the missing white woman syndrome that people have been talking about? You know what? It's real, right? You know, this was first identified as an issue back in 2004, right? So we're talking 20 years ago that, 
that's where this term was coined, missing white woman syndrome. And it's, it's the observed disproportionate media coverage. So it's observed, it's real. It's not made up. You know, we're not making, pulling things out of the sky here. This is real, um, that the coverage, um, especially in television, I think, um, of missing person cases involving white women um, gets much more attention um, than, you know, any person of color or, or our indigenous relatives, right? And, and we know that, uh, you know, age, gender, race, all factor into that, you know, into how visible somebody is in our media. And I think after 20 years of, of talking about this, it's, it's way past time to change that. You know, this certainly has become a big issue because of the recent case um, that's been on all the national news. And, and I do not begrudge that young lady the mm-hmm. coverage and the efforts that have been put into that case, right? Not for one second, but I got to wonder why our people aren't as, a, as important, why, why the media doesn't judge them to be deserving of the same attention and the same efforts to find them, the same efforts to ensure justice, right? It's, it's, it's unfathomable to me why that can be. Um, I did just recently read a, a, a study that came out in 2020, and it was published in um, Journalism Practice. Um, so it was journalists looking at this very issue, right? Um, and what they found was that, you know, as I said, all of those things that factor into whether or not something makes the news, you know, the age, the gender, the race, all of those things impact that decision. But what they found really was that the police were the primary gatekeepers, right? Mm-hmm. That it really is the police who, you know, if I call the media and say, my, my sister is missing, um, first thing they're going to look to is the police. Is there an investigation? Is something happening? Right. And if there isn't, they're not going to cover it. Um, And that's what this study found. And, you know, that points to, again, another disparity in our communities. We don't have the police. Oftentimes, tribal nations are dependent upon the county or the state or the federal government for that presence. And oftentimes it's not there. That's just another disparity that our people face that make it difficult to access justice. You know, jurisdictional issues is a huge problem for us. You know, since the, I believe it was 1978 Oliphant decision that, you know, stripped our jurisdictional authority. And we have to fix that. You know, that that definitely is part of the problem, you know, that the media is following the lead of of the law enforcement people responsible for investigating. But if there is no investigation, then there is no coverage. So we have to have that that law enforcement, those boots on the ground, the backing of the federal government to get these cases out in the media. One more thought process here before we go. I've read someplace where 84 percent of the crimes committed against violent crimes committed against Native women are really non-Native or off-reservation. Is that true? And can you give a little thought on that? You know, there was a study that was released in 2016 to the National Institute of Justice. Um, And, you know, the, the result, you know, the statistics are just horrific, of course. Um, And what they did find was that, uh, you know, the primary perpetrators were non-Native, right? So like if we look at sexual assault 
for experience. Um, for instance, you know, uh, 56% of women have, uh, our women have experienced sexual assault. Um, and in those cases, 96% of those perpetrators were non-native. Again, that points to that jurisdictional issue where if we don't have the authority to prosecute those non-native perpetrators, nothing happens. There is no justice. Yeah, I think that, you know, when we look at what's happening to Native people specifically, it's it's not happening within our communities. It's outsiders, right? And, and that's, you know, we certainly have... Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that there is, you know, there are no native perpetrators, no native abusive partners. There are, right? But the vast majority of what's happening is, is has really been brought in by non-native um, abusive partners. Strong Arts Native Helpline, how can we join, listen, even make a call to, to find out what's going on? This is a nationwide reach here. And so it Strong Hearts Native Helpline is also the same. Can you share us share with us the, the contacts so that we can broadcast it out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, our relatives that are in need can call or text us at 1-844-762-8483. They can chat with us online, uh, you know, if that's an option that they're interested in at strongheartshelpline.org. And then we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, um, and they can follow us at StrongHeartsDV. Um, so yeah, please reach out. Well, Lori, thank you. It's an honor to have you. And I know we've had you in the past on a few times, and but I thank you for doing this. And it, it seems very good. To, this feels good that people are paying attention now, um, especially with your work and your, your constituents there. Thank you so much for being here on First Voices Radio, Lori Jump. Thank you for having me. You know, it's it's radio stations like yourself, people that have us on that help us get the word out to the people that need us. So uh, we so appreciate the work that you're doing in Indian country and, and helping us spread our message. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. And that was Lori Jump of the Sioux St. Marie Chippewa Indians and Executive Director of Strong Hearts Native Helpline, which is a 24-7 culturally appropriate domestic dating and sexual violence helpline or Native Americans, Alaska Natives, and go to strongartshelpline.org for more information. And I would like to introduce this outro here um, at the first, uh, first Voices Radio, and uh, we'll out- outro with The Path, which is an acoustic version of a song that will be included on Code Red, the fourth album from Vince Fontaine's Indian City Band out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. The song talks about all of us walking the good path, standing together and having our say. So let's walk this path together. Code Red will be released worldwide on November 2nd. I'd like to say in my Lakota language, and I'd like to thank you for being here again on First Voices Radio. Join the parade today, let them see our life, show them the path we're creating, toss all your fears away, let them know we have the right, there's no reason or rhyme for separating, stars are moving, spinning, it's beginning, people, we're gonna have our say, cause we're getting 
Are you concerned for a friend or relative in their relationship? Stronghearts Native Helpline is here to help. Stronghearts is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic dating and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans and Alaska Natives. Connect with an advocate by calling or texting 1-844-7NATIVE or by using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. I've not seen it all yet in my 
soul I know No conception Is even Let there be love I wanna go to go home Take me home And we gonna rise Yeah High above the flames Our hearts open As the endless sky No more Just a reflection of the natural high Take me home 